The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for your great grace to us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've given us the privilege to study your word. And Father, as we thought about last week, we pray that you would make us such followers of yours that we desire more than anything else to hallow your name. We confess that we do not. We confess that we have many idols that often we put before you. We pray not only for your forgiveness, but we pray for tonight. Uh, we pray that tonight you would focus us on your truth, on the way in which you reveal yourself, that our eyes might be new and that we might see your glory uh, heralded throughout your creation. So be with us in our study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, as we get going tonight, just thought we'd uh, do a brief review just to think through where we were. Uh, last week, we, we began an intro to theological study, like why even do this thing that we're going to do because this is a this is a theological class we're studying theology and so we thought through well the name of the class itself hallowed be thy name um, that that first petition from the lord's prayer uh, that jesus teaches us to pray uh, when he says really this is what you should want uh, you should want your first petition should be that the name of god be hallowed and so we uh so we thought about that a little bit then uh, we mentioned, and, and uh, um, I, I want to draw on something that Mark uh, talked to me about right before, the, uh, right before we got started, before you all arrived. We mentioned that doing theology is one way in which we love the Lord our God with all our minds, right? We love him with all our hearts and with all our soul and all our strength, but we're also called to love him with our mind. And, uh, well, I guess, it was, I guess it was a little bit later down the road, Mark, I'll come to it right here, that we dealt with a couple objections to doing theology, and there are some. Some say it's impractical. And we said, instead, it's the most practical thing in that, it, just like the, the wise man who builds his house upon the rock, but does an impractical thing, right? We all want a house. We want to build up. He builds down, goes down to the bedrock, lays the foundation, and on that is anchored. And that's what we do when we do theology. Sure, we could do a class in here on, on, uh, on being better, better parents, being better spouses, being better students, being better. We could do all that. And those would be wonderful classes, too. But don't make the mistake to say that that's practical, but theology is impractical. Um, theology is thoroughly practical uh, and lays the deep roots for our Christian life. We also said that some say that theology is divisive, and we looked at that. That's a serious issue. We do not want our theology to be divisive among Christians, though we do want to wrestle things out. Right? We, don't want to be, we don't want to be Christians who can't have a good debate. We've got to learn how to debate and debate hard, but then have a meal together you know, fellowship and, and be brothers and sisters. But theology should divide us if, in fact, the person's not a Christian. Theology divides me and Jeho my Jehovah's Witness neighbor. I mean, they're very nice. I like them. I love them. I'm, I'll be friendly. But I'm sorry, theology divides us there. I can't call you a brother. And then thirdly, we said theology, some say it stifles spirituality. And, and Mark asked a question before because I said that Rather than stifling spirituality, theology should lay the groundwork for our spirituality. It shouldn't stifle it. The more I know about the Lord, the more I should praise him. The more I, the more I learn of his goodness, of his character, and all the things he's done for me, it should drive me to praise. And we looked at the Apostle Paul who did theology that way. 
right? Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then really deep theology. And then blessed be the name, you know, and to the, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then more deep theology uh, and so forth. And uh, Mark raised a good question. And I thought it would be worth bringing up here because he said, he, he quoted me back something I said, that the knowledge of God that we have as we study him becomes sort of the container into which that can hold, if you will, our love for God. And, uh, and therefore, the more that we study to know him, the deeper and richer my love for him can be. And he commented, he said, I know some people who really, really love the Lord, who really have very, very weak theology. They, they haven't studied very much. And that's, that's really good. I'm glad you brought that up because I don't want to say, uh, nor should you hear me saying, that theology is the only way you get to know God, right? I mean, some people know him. They have not done the study. But they know him through experience. I mean, they have met the Lord Jesus Christ. He's changed their lives. And that, that, that creates a deep and rich love for the Lord, right? Because they've seen the experience of the Lord or they've had prayers answered. And just that experience of, of seeing that uh, gives them a great love for the Lord. So that's true. And I don't want to discount that. But where I want to come back to theology is say the beauty of theology, though, is it gives deep, rich meaning to those experiences. And if we, say, if we say, oh, but that was such a rich experience I had with Jesus, which is awesome, I don't want to discount it. But if we say, that, that's all I want. I, I don't I get in the books, it just kills that. I don't want that, I just, I just want those deep, rich experiences. Well, the problem is, then we keep grasping after, I need new experiences all the time. And if, and if you get those deep, rich, hard on fire moments, praise the Lord, but they don't come all the time. That's just not the way the Christian life works. And so what you'll end up doing is either trying to grasp back and recreate an emotional moment or an experience, and, or you'll, you'll be, you won't have the categories to interpret your experience, whereas theology, again, gives you, it's, it's the big logs on the fire, right? It allows it to keep burning. And, uh, and it, gives, it gives, our theology gives content and richness to our praise and helps us interpret the very experiences that move me so much, right? If we're Christians, we should have experiences. You know, sometimes we, particularly as reformed folk, we're a little, uh, what do you mean experience? But no, we should, we should want that. We should decide if we're not experiencing anything with, with the Lord, then we got trouble. <laughs> I don't care how good your theology is. Okay. Then we said the goal of theology is knowing God, not just knowing about him and worshiping him. And I, I heard something this week and it made me think of this. And I said, oh, I just love it. That Jonathan Edwards, somebody was commenting on Jonathan Edwards and how Jonathan Edwards, who would spend like 18 hours a day in his study... Okay, so he, he was just all in to the word. Um, but his meditation, his time, his relaxing time would be horseback rides out into the woods. And he found that his study of theology of all things moved him so deeply that all he could do was sing it. He would sing. He would put his theological study to music and just sing. He did, because for him, it was so rich. It moved him so deeply to think about the goodness and the character of God that there, it, there was no expression to it. All he could do, it came bubbling out in song. I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure what it sounded like. Maybe that's why he went out in the woods by himself, I mean, <laughs> singing theology without real meter and so forth. But God bless him. He's just like, I don't know what else to do. I just have to sing this. So I thought that was pretty neat. We mentioned that the tensions of theology are that God is incomprehensible on the one hand, but knowable on the other. There's a tension between mystery and revelation. Some God is hidden and God has revealed himself, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And therefore, we have to know going into any theological study that we will never have it all. 
Not all our questions will be answered, and we've got to know where to plant those question marks and be okay with it. And, and the day you say, I'm not satisfied, I must have the answers, you need to be humbled. You need to remember you're the creature, and you're thinking about Almighty God, the infinite God. And that should humble us, and it should put us on our face before Him that I can't understand Him. Right? It's not that we can't understand anything. We don't want to slide into some skepticism that says, oh, you can't really know anything about God. That's not true. That's not true. God has revealed himself to me. He is really the, the, what, what Martin Luther called the deus absconditus, the hidden God, and the deus revelatus, that there's the hidden God and the revealed God. And God keeps some, a lot of who he is hidden from us, but he reveals truth about himself. And so we should worship. That should lead us to worship. And we should trust him. When I have question marks, things don't, don't seem congruous to me, I trust him. It says this in your word, and it says that. And Lord, in due time, if you give me understanding, great. But if not, I'll trust you. I'm just going to say what your word says until I get better clarity on it. And we've got to learn to do that. Okay. Now, as we jump into material for, uh, for this week... Um, as we get going today, I, want, I have one last introductory point, and, uh, and then we'll get into the first of really the four major topics that we'll talk about in this class, but still one last little introduction point, and that is H, the process of doing theology. Like, how do we do this thing? If we're going to study God, uh, the revelation of God, the nature of God, the Trinity, and so forth, how do we do it? What's the process that we go through in doing theology? And I want you to think about this so you know what's behind any theologian you hear or read, but also for you to think about the process of how I go about it. If I'm going to wrestle with a subject, a theological subject, how do I go about it? And I'm giving you, while, of course, there's probably a lot more we could say about this, I'll give you three basic simple steps to this. Um, the first step is exegesis, exegesis. Exegesis is the study of the text, and it's ex, extracting out of the Bible and out of a text within the Bible, the meaning of the Bible. That's where we must start, right? We start, when we do theology, it starts with exegesis. And exegesis is like the minute, up-close attention to the text. It's, and this is going to be in contrast with what we're going to kind of do in here, which is the zoom out, look at the whole story part. You can't do that. You can't zoom out and say, what's the Bible say about God? Until we've actually looked at individual texts about God and thought, what does this text mean? What does this text tell me? And there's a lot of texts in the Bible. And so this is a lifelong study for us and for theologians. But but we, our theology must ultimately root itself in exegesis, this extraction of the meaning from any given text. So we read the Bible and we study it and we think through, what does the Apostle Paul mean here when he says this? The text we looked at last week, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I've got I to gotta step back and I've got to say, okay, what do those words mean? Just as he chose us in him, Who's the he? Who's the him? Like, this is what Bible study is. I've got to think through. I, we have to be careful. I just read and go, yeah, I got that. This is how we, generally, we do in our devotions, and that's okay. We, we're reading, a lot of times we're reading for volume to read the scriptures, and, and, and the Lord blesses that. The Lord blesses that. But when we're going to do some study, then we got to start breaking it down. Who, he has chose us in him. Who's the he? Who's the him? 
Who's the us? What's it mean that he chose us in him? You know, and all of a sudden doing that work and grappling through with, with what Paul means or any text within the school. What does the psalmist mean when he says this or when he says that? Trying to work through that is a hard task, but it is what is required of us. And that is to say that we, as doing a study of theology, want to root ourselves to the text of Scripture and not to our imaginations or to our culture. And let me, let me explain what I mean and hopefully get to the importance of, of this and why I'm saying it. You and I have visions of who God is, right? But um, my dad is an ex-Marine. That's what I grew up with, all right? Uh, I grew up with a Marine dad, all right? A stern dad. My dad loved him, loved us as kids. My dad's a stern man. He's a Marine, okay? Now, like it or not, that affects my vision of God, all right? Because Jesus, uh, Jesus taught me to pray, our Father. I can't help but see my dad, right? And so now, now that is a bias I'm going to have. And there are things about my dad that are revelations of what God, my heavenly father is like, but there are a lot that are not. And this is not just me up here finally getting the chance to slam my dad. <laughs> he may listen to this, so I got to be careful. It's not that. It's me too. I look at my parenting, my kids and realize, oh boy. <laughs> Unfortunately, my children, when they think of God, will think of me and all my flaws, right? I've messed them up. I've messed them up in who they think about. They're going to have to undo a lot of things you know, when they think of God. So all, now what's easy to do? What's very easy to do is settle for that. Mm. It's very easy just to settle for, I, know, I already know who God is. And not let the text tell me who God is, right? Because if you did, if you had a stern father, the danger for you will be to think that somehow if you're not toeing the line, then he's displeased with you. Now, again, th th I'm, I'm, no, don't think of my dad, okay? My dad was very gracious and so forth. But you know what I mean. People who have had a very stern father who, or, or parents, it's not just father, but you get the point. People who have been under authority that's been very stern, they get off the line, blah, blah. Well, you start to think of God that way, that God judges me every day. He's either, maybe he's happy with me today, maybe he's not happy with me today, and you, you almost feel like I've got to earn something with him. I'm just always trying to earn. I never quite feel like I'm forgiven. Right? That's a danger, and that's what happens. If we don't root ourselves to text, we will have, we'll let other things come in and shape what we think about God. And that's what exegesis is about. As I come humbly before the Lord, say, I know I have all kinds of biases, and I want this text to help shape me in understanding who God is and who I am and so forth, right? Because it's, it's not just my dad. It's the culture I grew up in, right? We grew up, we're now living in a culture. You and I are soaking in a culture that tells us that if there is a God, and most Americans believe there is, right? If there is a God, he's a non-judgmental, loving God. He would never dare convict anybody over their lifestyle. He just won't do that. And therefore, you better not either, okay? Now, now again, uh, we are soaking in a culture that does that to us, right? That begins to shape us. Maybe you're not affected by that. Maybe you are. A lot of people are. Begin to get shaped over that vision of God. And again, so my culture begins. All these forces are working on me to give me a vision of who God is and who I am, and so forth. And the reality is we need to be those who root ourselves within exegesis, in, in rooting ourselves in the text of the scriptures and trusting what they say. 
I have to deal with the God of the Bible, for example, who I'm told is a consuming fire. Who, when Uzzah touched the ark falling off the back of the ox cart, the Lord killed him. He didn't die. The Lord killed him. Okay? I have to deal with that God, that he is holy, right? He's a consuming fire. I've got, and if that makes you uncomfortable, great. Then the text is doing its work on you, right? It's, we're all going to be uncomfortable when we read the text and when we wrestle with who God is. I also need to read the scriptures that tell me that I am really forgiven. Whatever I have done, I am forgiven of it all. And you're like, yeah, but I know, I know, I know, I know that's true. I know that's true, but I, you don't know my whole story, okay? No, 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 but that, that's not what the Bible says. Paul says, I was the chief of all sinners. And yet he has a new identity in Jesus Christ. And it's like, now, who, 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 are you going to believe what your mind says about you in convicting you? Or are you going to believe what the scriptures say about you in Jesus Christ, right? And that's the challenge. So exegesis is getting ourselves into the text and humbling ourselves before the text to say, you shape me. You teach me what I need to know. Like, like Samuel you know, when, when he goes to Eli and, and, uh, and he's, you know, he's saying that he keeps hearing this, you know, this uh, voice. And, and finally, he's just told, go next time the voice speaks to you, Samuel, say, speak for your servant is listening. And that's how we need to come to the text. We need to come to the text saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things within your word and help me. Help me deal with my own, my own biases that I bring to the text. So again, the, the, the posture of humility and of repentance. So when we do theology, we should also wear out the knees on our pants because we're repenting, going, oh Lord, why? It's, I've dishonored you by thinking about you this way. So, so first step is exegesis. Extracting meaning from individual texts and working through text after text. It doesn't mean we can't do any broad theology until we've studied every text in the Bible. It just means that we always want to be studying texts and, and chewing on what the Lord has for us. And, that, and so it's a process. That's going to help me then correct. I'm going to read this text and go, wait a second, wait a second. What I'm reading in here doesn't make sense with something I believe out here. In my broad scope of what I believe as a Christian, what I believe in my theology, this text seems to contradict that. Now, either I'm reading the text wrong or I'm believing something wrong. And that is the process of theology. We all do that. Nobody, nobody, not your pastor, not the best theologian you have in the back of your mind, has got it all figured out and has never changed an opinion, a thought, have to repent of something. We all do that. That's the process we go through. So it starts with exegesis. And then the second step is biblical theology. And biblical theology then is now starting to zoom out a little bit and it's taking a theme, a topic, and beginning to look at it in the broader scope of a book or of a section of books, right? So we might say things like, what is, what is the doctrine of the temple as we read it in Ezekiel? And we might go through all of Ezekiel trying to see what does Ezekiel tell us about the temple of God? What's Paul's vision of sin? And I go look in all Paul's letters. What does he say about sin? And I take a theme now, and broadly I try to understand it in the broad scope of a section of Scripture. Or we might trace a theme. How does God's uh, revelation of these things progress over time? Um, the, the class that we'll be doing in the, in the winter, uh, Behold the Lamb, is, a, is a, basically a whole class on that with regards to Christ. It's looking at how 
Christ is progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament. Right? And how do we learn things? Like in Genesis 3.15, we got a seed of a woman crushing the head of a serpent. It's like, what is that about? It's about Jesus. But it takes time for us to kind of get to Jesus. And, and we got Noah in an ark. And we've got, you know, Abraham about to sacrifice his son, but a ram is caught in the thicket. And we've got a Passover lamb with blood on the door. And we've got a sacrificial lamb in the Day of Atonement. And, and we just keep building and building and building on this theme of, of someone coming and taking our place and restoring us and reconciling us to God. And one image builds on the next and builds on the next. And we, tra- we trace a theme through the scriptures until, boom, Christ and we get the, the fullness of the revelation. And that's biblical theology, doing that work. It's not now just narrow text. It's taking themes and running them through the scope of Scripture or through the scope of a book or a section of books. And so that adds on. We have, we, you need exegesis first to even begin to start that process. And then thirdly, systematic theology is like the grand synthesis now. That's saying, what is the Christian view of sin? What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about God? Now we're, to, now we're painting in, we may not, I shouldn't say we paint in broad strokes, but now we're talking about big themes. We're pulling from all over the scriptures because we've done the exegesis. We've done some biblical theology. We think we're, we're setting these things within their appropriate context. And now we're doing broad things. What does the Bible say about something? But the Bible says a lot. So if we don't do that early work, it's going to be hard for us to say, what does the Bible say about sin? Or what does the Bible say about Jesus? Right? We had to do the other work first. So that little process there is the process that, uh, we do when we're studying theology. So hopefully that's what's behind this class and everything we do. Okay. Now let's go then to the first of the four major subjects that we'll look at in here. I said we're going to look at the revelation of God, how God reveals himself. We're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Actually, Dr. Kevin Sherritt is going to come and you'll be, I think you'll be blessed by, by him. He's done a lot of study on this and uh, he's going to come and, and talk about the Trinity. Uh, because I'll be away. And then um, the attributes of God, the character of God. And then fourthly, the works of God in his work of creation and providence. So first, the revelation of God. All right, so the revelation of God. Now remember, when we talk about the revelation of God here, we're not talking about the last book in the Bible now. Right now, I taught that class, and we're like, revelation again, Bill? <laughs> Come on, you and, you and revelation. Um, no, 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 that's not what I mean. We're not going down that road. Here, revelation just means the disclosure of, right? The uncovering of God. So here, what we're going to do in this section is study God's self-disclosure. How does God make himself known to us? Sometimes we just take it as for granted that he does. Well, we want to pause and we want to think about that. It's important. Right at the outset, the very idea of God's revelation is an important concept for us to think about um, because if we think about the fact that uh, God is revealing himself, that God is disclosing himself, then we, we will reckon with the fact that this learning of God is something that God initiates. God initiates. All that you and I know about God, certainly all we know about anything, is the result of God's revelation. I know it seems so obvious, but it's worth meditating on and reflecting on. Again, if for nothing else, then to humble us. Everything you know about God, God has given you. All right? God has initiated. We do not climb up and find God. God discloses himself 
to us, uncovers himself, reveals himself to us. Remember, he's the incomprehensible one. You and I, in and of ourselves, do not have the necessary equipment, mental equipment, to find or to know God. Again, this is important for us so that we humble it. Don't forget your dirt, right? Your dirt. I hate to break this to you. Remind you again, <laughs> but your dirt. Uh, you're wonderful dirt, all right? I think you're very nice dirt. <laughs> very glad you're here. <laughs> but you are dirt. Now, see, a lot of people, who, when people come out to RMTs, they don't say things like that. They're afraid they'll drive their audience away. But we are dirt. We have to remember that, right? I mean, it, was like, it would be like a rock. It would be like a rock trying to learn about me. That's just stupid even to say that. It's ridiculous. But that's what you are. You're a dirt that God blessed by making you in his image, by giving you the necessary equipment even to know him. And even that wouldn't do it if he didn't give the revelation of who he is. He is the incomprehensible one. We cannot reach out and get him. But, and again, remember I said this is the tension of theology, the incomprehensible God and yet the knowable God. But what makes him knowable is that he reaches out to us. Doug Wilson, a pastor I like out in, in, uh, in Moscow, Idaho, was in a debate with Christopher Hitchens once, and Hitchens was, was you, know, the, the, you know, the atheist Christopher Hitchens. And he was challenging Wilson on this very point, that God's infinite, and therefore you could really never know him anyway. And Wilson said, yeah, exactly. And then he used this metaphor. He said, but if I'm in a jail and I'm chained to the wall, he goes, it may be that I can't reach out and touch the jailer's nose, but it doesn't mean that the jailer can't reach out and touch mine. Right? I can't. I, you're right. My limitations may be that there's no conceivable possible way for me to get to God. True. But it doesn't mean God doesn't, can't come to me. And this is the good news of his grace to us is that he has. He has revealed himself to us. He has given us the revelation of who he is. And he has given us minds. He has given us the equipment to apprehend and to understand, to perceive who he is. But we must never forget it is God who initiates. Now, I have up here Matthew 11. Because here, Jesus... Praise again, one of these prayers of Jesus. Um, I have the New King James tonight. This is right before a very familiar text where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest, right? But right before that, you get, you get this interesting outbreak of prayer by Jesus. And listen to what he says with regards to this idea that the revelation of God is something, again, the, he, the knowledge of God is something he initiates. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Notice, I give you praise, Father, that you've hidden these things. Right? There's some things that the ones Jesus is speaking about cannot know. And the reason they can't know is because God has hidden it from them. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, 
and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You see that? See, that's humbling because it says, no one knows the Father but the Son. No one. And they have eternally known one another. The Father knowing and loving the Son for all eternity. The Son knowing and loving the Father and the Spirit with the Father and the Son in this beautiful triune uh, uh, love and knowledge that has been going on for all eternity. But they're the only, they know each other. No one knows the Father but the Son and those to whom the Son reveals it. And if the Son doesn't reveal it, you don't know the Father. There is no way to know the Father, according to this. For the Father has kept these things hidden from them. Now again, see, here's where we got to come to the text and say, have I thought about that? That there's a God who might keep things hidden from people? There's where, again, I got to let the text work on me. If that, if you're going, wait a second, I don't have a place in my theology for that. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that with God at all. Well, then, good. Then go back and rethink your theology, right? Then, then go back and, and think, how, wait, how do I understand this text? What does he mean here? I go back and start doing the exegesis on it, right? I got to go back and think, what is, what is Jesus asking? What is he praying for here? What does he mean here? But here he is clearly saying that he has hidden these things from the wise, Right? They don't understand it. You know how many times Jesus tells a parable that to us is pretty much on the surface? And they're like, what did that even mean? Like they just can't see it. Well, their, their eyes are blind and the Lord has not chosen to reveal it to them. He's not opened their eyes. In fact, he lets the fact, and this is really challenging. And I wish I had it right off on my fingertips here, somewhere in Luke, uh, at least in, the, in Luke's gospel, where, he's, where he actually says, the reason I speak in parables is so they won't understand me. Right. We think, oh, he speaks in parables because he gives the parables so that he makes it clear. He uses all these wonderful stories. No, Jesus says, I speak in parables so that they will not understand what I'm saying. You're like, well, I just didn't, I didn't think of Jesus in those categories that he's saying things so that you, but in not understanding, you're condemned. Right? I have said it, and the fact that you don't understand it is your condemnation. It reveals the blindness of your heart and the blindness of your eyes. And so he intends to do that. The proud, right? the wise, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden this from them. Right? It works on their condemnation. So, the, so when we talk about the revelation of God, this is important for us. It's important for us to remember that God initiates. He has revealed this to us in his Son. And it's particularly important when we study theology because when you study something, and I'll bet you in here, if we, if we, if I, some of you are, I, I don't know if you probably wouldn't call yourself this, but some of you are experts on things. You just know it, all right? And, and so you have, you have studied it and worked it and you've mastered it. As, you know, as much as you can as a finite creature, right? But you'd say, yeah, no, I feel like I've mastered this subject or this skill. That's what study and knowledge does. And that's a good thing. But when you come to theology, the idea of knowledge leading to mastery is not a good thing. It's impossible. But we tend to think that you, know, you get a feeling the more you know about something, the more confident you are that you're beginning to master a subject. And that just can't be thought of here when you study theology. It's very dangerous to do that. So we got to remember, I only know what the Lord has allowed me to know what he has revealed to me and I'm completely dependent on him. I'm always dipping my bucket into an infinitely deep well, always. And you will never plumb the depths of it. So keep dipping, right? Like we said, the little bottle cap, keep going, keep going. But just know you'll never plumb the depths. You're never going to master theology and that's okay. Okay, now 
to the subject itself, we're going to talk tonight about capital A because the revelation of God breaks in then to two subcategories. So when we consider how God has revealed himself, generally the revelation of God falls into two basic categories. And those are the categories of general revelation and special revelation or, and don't worry, special revelation is not up there, but it'll be up there next week um, because that's what we'll talk about next week. So um, general revelation is the revelation of God in a very general way, right? General truths about him. Um, And we'll talk about the way, what, what do you think would be some examples of general revelation? God revealing himself, but only in a very general way. Okay, yeah, the heavens, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about that, Psalm 19. Yeah, Psalm 19. Say it again? Nature. Yeah, nature itself, right? So we learn, we, we, we go outside, and, and because, again, by God's grace, you and I have been given eyes to see it, right? We, we, see, we see glory of God all around. You know, we just see it. It's just singing to us when we go out on some days. <laughs> some days, uh, it's just singing. And, uh, yeah, so that's very general, right? But the heavens, the heavens don't go, God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? It doesn't do that. It just says God exists. He's awesome. He's powerful. And that's general. Special revelation, now we start to get very specific uh, uh, revelation. So what would be an example of special revelation? Okay, he talks personally. We see that in the Bible when he speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, you know, and uh, you know, come here in the burning bush. That, well, that's, that's specific special revelation that's that's not general i mean he gives the 10 commandments right what would be another example of special revelation okay the god the bible the gospel as we get it here at least in the scriptures the bible itself would be uh would be special revelation so we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about special revelation next week but we're going to dive in a little bit today on the topic of general revelation and i want to give you a definition here and this definition, believe it or not, for those of you who are uh, at the City of God talk, is from Lane Tipton. Um, this is uh, Dr. Tipton's definition. And I thought, well, I'll go with it. And it seemed, seemed good to me. Um, his definition of general revelation is God's clear, covenantal self-disclosure. But again, right, he's doing it. God's clear covenantal self-disclosure of his existence, his attributes, and his requirements to all people in all ages through nature, history, and conscience so that they are without excuse to worship him and live righteous lives. That's it. That's it. That's a, yeah, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. And that he's, you can hear him drawing from some of the things even that uh, you all mentioned and that we're going to look at here. God's clear covenantal self-disclosure of his existence, attributes, and requirements to all people in all ages through nature, history, and conscience so that they are without excuse to worship him and live righteous lives. Okay. So again, so what are we talking about here? Basically, we're talking about God's self-disclosure in creation. Right? We're talking about the fact that God reveals himself to us in his created order. And we call it general revelation because again, these are general truths. 
they're truth. We are, we are learning something true about God, but they're general. Notice also that uh, Dr. Tipton says that they are clear, and we'll reflect on that, uh, the clarity of this revelation. Um, we'll see it in Romans 1, right? These things have been made manifest by God in creation. It's clear, and, and, and maybe, maybe we'll have to wrestle a little bit with uh, what has sin done to this revelation? What effect has sin had? I mean, because I say, oh, the glory of God is in, in nature, you know? So I look at a beautiful oak tree and I say, there's the glory of God. And then all of a sudden it gets a disease and rots and falls down. Now, how would, now what does that mean, right? <laughs> what does that mean? I have, to, I have to think through. And this is where, again, we need, we need the, we're going to need the Bible ultimately to help us with those things more than just, because I learn and maybe I get a little conflicting message there. So I have, I need, I need, I'm going to need the scriptures. General, general revelation is going to be important and necessary, but ultimately insufficient for me uh, to know all I need to know about God. So he says it's clear. And notice also he says it's covenantal. It's covenantal. That's interesting. Because the disclosure of God as he reveals himself within the created order, it's not some arbitrary disclosing, right? It's just like, uh, and I'm going to even use the language that he leaves his fingerprints on his creation, that, that the great builder who, who, when he does his work, leaves his fingerprints so that he's discoverable within his creation. He leaves evidence of his workmanship. And that's true. But that almost makes it seem as if it's an accidental thing. I just, I leave information out there and maybe you'll find it, maybe you don't. But, but Dr. Tipton gives us an excellent uh, uh, he includes this, I think, and it's so important to say that God's revelation is covenantal, that it's with a purpose that God reveals himself. And that purpose is that his creatures might know him. That when God creates, his desire is to have his creatures know him. That all of his relationship with us as human beings is covenantal. It's a relationship. And, and that, by the way, is true for the non-believer also. Because the non-believer... <laughs> was in Adam, and God made a covenant with Adam. Every human being was built, created. Every human being is dirt that was meant to be in a covenantal relationship with God. Right? We're the moon that orbits God. Right? We, we, are, we are to orbit God. That we're to, God is to be at the center, and we are built to do that. Every human being is meant to do that. And God has given this revelation of himself to draw us into the knowledge of God, which then is quite convicting and condemning because we see this, may, this is not what's happening with a lot of folks. When they look at, the, at creation, we're going to find out what they do with it. Rather than glorifying God, they start worshiping the thing itself because they refuse to worship God. So it's clear and it's a covenantal self-disclosure. God himself uh, revealing who he is and doing so clearly and in, in a desire for a relationship with the intention of a relationship. Okay, let's look at some scripture here and think through this revelation that, uh, that God gives. So let's think about the three modes of... Uh, so I have number two up there, modes of general revelation. And I'm just going gonna, gonna to go backwards here for a second, just to back to his definition. So we're going to consider these things. God's clear covenantal self-disclosure of his, notice the three things that he says are revealed in this. God's existence, pretty general, 
his attributes. What do we mean by attributes? Yes, characteristics, right? Who, what he's like. Descriptions of God. So his attributes and his requirements, the law, right? To all people, it's general. In all ages, through, and here are going to be these three modes. We'll just get, let's look at the scriptures to help us with here for a minute. He does this in the realm of nature, history, and conscience. I'm actually going to, so I'm going to go nature, conscience, history, I think. Uh, so we, let's take these three modes where we would see, where do we hear the word of God in this general way, and let's look to the scriptures to help us. So let's think first, and it was already stated, but a psalm that many of us know, and that's Psalm 19, 1 through 3. And here we get God's revelation of himself to us, in creation, in nature itself, right? You know this passage. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, the skies, shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. So that's, I uh, read through verse four there. So now notice, now some, some, uh, some translations uh, have uh, in um, verse three, where it says there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Some translations, and maybe you're looking at them going, hey, wait a second, mine doesn't say that, says they have no speech or language. Their voice is not heard. Okay, so so one is, one is getting at and, and saying, look, it's, it's words, it's, it's declaring, but without literal words. That's how some translators are understanding it. Other translators are understanding it to say there's no place, no language, no tribe, there's no race that has not heard this declaration from the heavens. So I just wanted to alert you to the, the possibilities there. So that what's happening here? The heavens are declaring. Again, notice the clarity of it, right? They're, they're just screaming out to us that, the, uh, that God is glorious and that he is praiseworthy. So again, we get that revelation uh, right in nature. Now let's think about, and we'll come back to these, but let's think about Romans chapter one. So Romans chapter one, according to the psalmist, the heavens are doing this. Right? And, and again, we could, we could spend some time in here meditating on, on how and the glories of it, right? But you all, I think just instinctively within us, we, we know, we felt it, right? We, we go out at night and we look at the stars and we just say, oh, God, you're amazing. Right? We just, we're in awe of it. Or we watch the sunset. My, my kids always make fun of me. I'm always trying to get pictures of sunsets. I can't, because it's almost like I can't get enough of them. They're so beautiful so many times, you know? Just the, the, the sun and the colors and and a Christian that instinctively begins to praise and begins to worship, right? We just, we, we say thank you to, to God for his beauty and his creation because it's so clear to us. It's just screaming out to us. The heavens are declaring it. And it's so obvious to hear their song that God is great and that he is praiseworthy. Now, Paul's going to make a similar point here in Romans chapter 1. And so let's, we, we want to hold Psalm 19 and Revelation 1 together. And Paul's going to go in a little bit more to man's response to this and the conviction of that. So we'll take, we'll, we're going to spend some time at the end thinking about just that, man's response to this. 
Romans 1, and this is verses 18, and we'll go through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to, the dishonor, uh, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, again, notice a couple things here as we think about God's general revelation in nature itself. What, what in this text is, does Paul say is being revealed? What, what is being revealed uh, in creation, according to Paul? A couple things. Okay, wrath. Now, we'll come back to that later when we do attributes and we think about God's wrath. It's interesting, and I, I won't go into it here, but it's, I would challenge you, though it'll be a few weeks, to think through in this text, and this is not the only text that talks about wrath, um, but in this text how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. It's an interesting little thought uh, thing to work through there in this text. I'll leave that out there for you and maybe meditate on that yourself. And when we come back to God's wrath, we'll come back to this text because there's a, a dimension to his wrath here that I think is, I think, often overlooked and in some ways is, uh, is more troubling than, than our typical our typical thoughts about God's wrath. But, but yes, in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What else is revealed about God according to this text in nature? His eternal power and his Godhead. So his existence, the fact that he is God and his eternal power are manifest they are clearly seen, going back to Dr. Tipton's uh, definition, right? Of that it's, it's God's clear covenantal self-disclosure. According to this text, this revelation is clear that the heavens, going back to Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The wrath of God is being revealed. The power of God, his eternal power, and the fact that he is God has been clearly seen, verse 20. And notice that in verse 20, he says, for since the creation of the world. So it's not, well, in the creation of the world, it was clear. But then sin came in and muddled the whole thing up, and you really can't. Now, who can blame anybody for not really seeing it now? When he says since, right, the word since means from that time all the way until the present time I'm writing to you. It has been clearly seen. And notice, he really piles it on. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood. 
This is, this is something for us to, again, wrestle with because we all know people who do not believe in God. Right? We all know people who blow this off. But Paul is going to challenge us here to think of whether or not there really is a true atheist down in their core. Yeah, there's no question, right? People can, people can find, right? We're going to see it. They exchange the truth for a lie. So yes, there are people who have done that. and There's no doubt about it. But Paul's going to drive us to think, is there really a true atheist? They understood. It has been clearly seen. And then the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. Why? Verse 21, because although they knew God, that's really strong language. <laughs> they know God but they do not glorify him as God, nor are they thankful. I just, that is, I love that and it's challenging to me. It's one of those things that I kind of held on, latched onto that when Paul boils down the sinfulness of man's response to God in general revelation, he boils it down to the fact they don't give thanks and they don't glorify him. And then I think in light of that, what should characterize you and me as what should characterize christians then we glorify god and we give thanks to him right we are filled with thanksgiving that that's really when it when it gets down on the ground at least one thing that is a radical contrast between believers and non-believers is we are thankful to him you and i see the sunset our instinctive response is thank you thank you for what you've done thank you for letting me see it Thank you for letting me enjoy this moment. The non-believer has no one to thank. There's no one to thank. They can be in awe. Many will be tempted ultimately to worship creation itself. It's so awesome. It inspires that kind of, that kind of praise. And yet there's no one ultimately to give it to. They have to swallow it. They just, yet, yet what, what Paul's getting at is in them, everything wants to praise God. Right? It's there. It's like they know they should. They just can't. They have to swallow it. So, so we've got in this, as, and that's where Dr. Tipton's getting that uh, from his definition. It's clear. It's manifest to them. They know it. All right? So, indeed, the fingerprints of God, if you will, are all over creation, but with intentionality. In these fingerprints, he's declaring something for all of us to see. His handiwork reveals something of who he is. If we look at this building right here, I don't know who, I don't know who built this, but... but we could just look at this room right here and we could learn something about the builder, right? If, if we studied this building, we could learn something about the builder. We would learn something about his skill. Well, we would say, it seems like the guy knew what he was doing. Or maybe some of our builders in here be like, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I see that, you know, the builders, they catch this stuff. You can't get away with anything, right? They spot this. They go, that tells me something. It's shoddy work, right? They would spot it. They would see it. And so, but we could learn something. If things are in their proper places and it looks like it has purpose, I, I see that this, I open it up, there's storage space there and it's covered with a door, I see purpose. If I didn't know anything else, I would say, well, this, this room was built with intentionality. I, now I, I have some sense why they put a window there, right? If there, if there was a brick wall right outside of the window, I'd say that was a really bad, I, if the window was here pointing into the closet, I'd say that, was a, that, that tells me something about the, the, the craftsman here. But the fact that the window faces outside, I learned something. Okay, the, they, had, they had a vision. They made sense of it. They did quality work. I can learn. Now, I'm, what I can't learn is whether the builder was a male or female. I can't learn whether they're married or single, young or old. I, I can't tell whether they've had kids, whether they had a hard life or an easy life. I just, I, wealthy or poor, black or white, I, that, none of this I'm really going to know. I'm going to need something else if I'm going to learn that. 
right? But I can learn some general things. And so when we look at the created order, when I listen to the heavens, right? When I see the created order, I'm gonna, it's like looking at this building. I can learn something. God has intentionally given me information so that I might know his character. And in nature, what's a little bit different than the builder here is that in nature, creation is itself a word from God. Remember, how did God create? He spoke. And he said, let there be. And so as God speaks the world into existence, then the existing world is a message. It's the word of God. And and to a certain degree. And he reveals only what he chooses to reveal through it. Ultimately, it's going to require a much richer word, a more particular word. And what is the word that finally and fully reveals God? Jesus. And it's interesting that when John gets to that in John 1.1, he gives us like almost takes us back into a creation narrative, doesn't he? In the beginning, he tells us. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God himself. And so ultimately, while fine, the, the created order, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. I say, God is glorious. And I think I've seen his glory by looking at the stars. And then Jesus shows up. And now I behold his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, right? Now I get the real full word, right? Not just, not just the fingerprints, if you will. So all of creation, though, is a word from God. God spoke and said, let there be. And therefore, every molecule of creation is speaking to us from God. Now, again, don't get crazy. and say, just, just understand that it's all saying something general to us about God. I'm not telling you to go listen to the molecules. Or we don't want to come out of here with some crazy new age thought out here. I'm a ministry of listening to the molecules. No, no, but I think of, of R.C. Sproul has that great line when he says um, that there, because God is so sovereign, because he is sovereign, there is no maverick molecule. There's not one molecule in all creation that's free-floating and like doing its own thing. Every molecule of creation is acting in accordance with God's sovereign purpose. And I want to say, picking up on Sproul's language, I want to say there's no neutral molecule. There's no neutral molecule that says, man, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. Every molecule, right, every subparticle declares the glory of God. There's nothing neutral. It's all preaching to us. Whether we zoom out to the deepest heavens or whether we zoom in, right, to the proton or neutron or whatever the smallest thing we can see. I don't even think we can see those, but whatever the smallest thing is, we can see. Zoom in there and it's preaching to you. It's all pointing to the wonder of God, to his wisdom, right? When we look at the creator, just like we look at this building, I can see the wisdom of putting the door there. And when we look at the creator world, we see the wisdom of God and we see the power of God as it's given to us. Psalm 19 says we see his glory and his praiseworthiness. Romans 1 says we see his power, his existence, his wisdom, and so forth. The order of God throughout all creation. Okay, so so we said we're looking at nature, conscience, and history. So... um, We looked at nature, and now let's think about conscience here, or the the interior, all right? So sometimes when we're talking about this in theology, we talk about immediate, um, we're going to move to conscience, yeah, B, and I I don't have it up here, but um, sometimes we call it (laughs) immediate revelation and immediate revelation. That is, this, through nature, 
and even through history, the revelation of God is mediated through things. So it's the, it's the heavens that are declaring it to us. I look at the stars outside of me and I see, I see the glory of God. But when we talk about be the conscience in these things, this is going to be immediate. That is, I'm not learning it from something out there. It's something that wells up within me. So it's immediate to me. And so three things here. Um, the first is the Latin, as I was saying. So you sound smart when you, you put Latin up there. It's like, wow, he know, this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. yeah I know. You know me. Um, so the census divinitatus is a phrase. And I, when I do give Latin phrases, I give it only because it is a common uh, theological phrase. And this, we get this as a thought from John Calvin again. I refer to Calvin on these things because he has a lot of wisdom, and I would encourage you, if you've never read him, to try, because you'll be shocked. You'll be, it's readable. It's readable. Some of them he's dealing with a historic, with a historic moment, you know, but, but uh, you'll find him devotional, too, I believe it or not. Census, S-E-N-S-U-S, divinitatus. D, there's a couple extra T, you know, you know, D-I-V-I-N-I-T-A-T-U-S, the sense of the divine. And Calvin argues that within the very heart and soul of man is built a sense of the divine, right? The knowledge of God, essentially, right? A sense that there is a God, a sense that we are a creature and that we have been created with purpose, you know, um, that, that Calvin says that's just woven right into your soul. That's not something I'd need to learn from the outside. And that's why, the, the, that's why you don't lift your eyes if you're a non-believer because uh, to do that resonates with something that's already bubbling up within me. I'm, I'm, you know, you're doing enough to try to press that down. In fact, the language of Romans 1 is just that. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of those who suppress the truth. It's wanting to bubble up within me and what it, we do by nature is we want to suppress that. I want to hold it down. I don't want to let it come up to my heart to where I have to deal with it. So we're suppressing that, this sense of the divine. Two uh, passages here. One uh, we won't open to, but the Ecclesiastes 3.11 passage is where uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Right, So that, that idea that right within the heart of us is this sense of the eternal, that this is not all there is. And it really is. It's, it's, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling before. It's baffling to me to listen to people who have no care for the things of God at all after someone dies talk about what people are doing after death. You know, they're, you know, they're, I just know. I just know, you know and then we say this to comfort. They say it to comfort themselves and to comfort friends. You know, I know he's, I know he's on the back nine now up in heaven. You know, things like that. And you're like, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, he's golfing in heaven. Um, and, but like... Like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, I, hey, I, there may very well be guy. I have no doubt, right? In the new creation, there's going to be the best golf courses ever, right? Wally's like, oh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, that's no problem. That's no problem. But, but, I mean, I have a reason for thinking there's going to be golf courses in the new creation. Like, I believe in the new creation. But, but, when, but when those who have no belief in God, then all of a sudden try to comfort their souls and their grief by telling one another he's in a better place. And you're like... Okay, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't mock. I understand, but that's where, boom, it bubbles up. And now in my grief, I kind of need to think that, but it goes away pretty quickly. Um, so, but that, Calvin would say, yeah, that's, uh, or the book of Ecclesiastes would say, yeah, that's because eternity has been put in the heart of man. Like, we just, we sense it. I mean, why don't we just completely despair? 
Somebody dies and he's just like, man, I can't believe that's over. It's just over because it's nothingness. The lights went out and there's nothing, right? I mean, you don't hear that at funerals of even non-believers. So we talk this talk because something in us is, uh, there's something there that itches for that and longs for that. Um, so God, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. But then also back in Romans 1, and this is interesting, and again, some of your translations, uh, I don't know which translations get this right and get it wrong. I know the New King James here gets this right. Um, in verse, so going back to verse uh, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God, and now the King James gets this right, is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Now some translations will say because what may be known about God is manifest to them for God has made it clear to them. But it's in them. It's in them. That, and, and that gets to this point, right? That the, the reality of God is not only something that has been manifest out there. It's been something that's been manifest in us. It's woven right into the very soul of man. And again, you see this in other ways too. Somebody drew the, my attention to this too. The fact that even a non-believer, not all, but some, will instinctively ask the big question, Why? Why would this happen? Or they'll say things on the other hand, we know everything is working for a purpose or everything has a purpose. <laughs> like, why do you possibly believe that? That's inconsistent to believe that there is a purpose, right? If you don't believe there's a God, there is no purpose. I'm telling you, we are one big random cosmic accident. But we know that's not true. We know, tell me an accident that turns out like this. I mean, you ever see an accident that when it's all over, looks unbelievably amazing and then you can use it? You know, it's like, it's just like, I mean, what kind of accident gets better and better and better over time? Talk to people who, who, who program computers and say, well, if, if, I, if I input the data wrong, rarely do I ever end up with a better program. <laughs> right? But that's what we are taught. We are told to believe this. Our students are pumped with this every day, that there are genetic mutations, but these mutations keep improving us randomly over time. And any software developer should be like, what? <laughs> no, I've never seen a code error that then produces a better program. It ruins, the, it crashes the whole system. But ours is the one that somehow keeps mutating, keeps getting copying errors in the DNA, and keeps getting better and better and better and just improving wonderfully all throughout. This is what we tell ourselves. And yet you just say, why? Why do you believe there's any purpose in anything? And yet instinctively people want to know why for things. Or, but that's a question. To even ask the question why is because something down in you is telling you there's a reason. And Christians, we know there's a reason, but we also know we don't often know the reasons. And again, we humble ourselves and we say, I understand there's mystery. But I have a reason to ask why, because I believe there's a sovereign one who is a creator, who is in charge over all things. So, all right, so... so Romans 1.18, it's, it's manifest within us. Ecclesiastes 3, eternity's been put in our heart. Then I put the image of God, and we'll move over that quickly, but the fact that we are ourselves revelation of God. You were created to be a God revealer. You are his image. We should look at us and see what God is like. Now, again, we're broken, but we are part of that revelation of God. He has given us his image to reflect his character and so forth. And even our rationality, as we said, the fact that God has given us reason, 
unlike any of the other animal kingdom, right? In the animal kingdom, God has given us the desire and the ability to probe and to question. And in such, we, might, we, we, we uh, reveal the image of God. And that's just built right into us. And then thirdly, conscience proper, right? The, the fact that we actually have a conscience, right? And the conscience, again, is general revelation that's from within you. But the conscience reveals something you don't get just from the stars or the honeybee or the, you know, something we see the sunset. The conscience convicts. The conscience tells us that God is just. You, you, might, you might think that when you look at the stars, but there's nothing in the stars that says he's just, right? You might say he's good, he's wise, but the conscience, the fact that we all have a conscience that built into us is this moral code. Yes, it's a general code. It's not like the Ten Commandments. That's special revelation. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. That's special, particular revelation. The thou shalts, right? We get the scriptures, the gut sense that we have of right and wrong gets some definition to it. What conscience is, is that general revelation of the justice of God, right? You know how the conscience works. It nudges. So I'm going to do something I shouldn't do, and my conscience goes, no, no. That's all really. I go, don't, 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 don't. Yeah. And when I do, it goes, oh, jeez. <laughs> right? That's what my conscience says. Oh, you loser. That's what my conscience does. And when I should do something, it goes, come on. And when I do it, it goes, that a boy. Right? That's what, that's, that's what the, conscience, the conscience just kind of gives me these nudges. You do something kind for somebody, and it gives you warm, fuzzy feelings. And you hurt somebody, and you come back, and you feel rotten. Just general. Those general senses, but they're there, and they're consistent. They're consistent throughout humanity. Now, can, like everything else, you suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Can you squash the conscience and over time kind of kill it? Say, I refuse to listen. I refuse to listen. This is right. This is right. This is right. Yeah, you can. You can stifle the conscience. But across humanity, we all share it. We all see evil and we're all repulsed by it. Right? When, 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 um, when that shooting, or we could pick anything, but when that shooting happened in Newtown, Connecticut, when those kids, when the, the first graders were shot, you know, I remember I ended up on a flight back. My flight got, Christina was meeting me down at White Plains and weather was bad. They landed us at JFK of all places. And then we had to get a bus from JFK to White Plains. It was horrible. And I ended up next to this guy, a Jewish man who was basically an atheist, admitted he was an atheist and didn't care about anything, but, but was a really nice guy and got to talk to me. And I was actually coming back from a pastor's conference. And so we sat next to each other. What do you do? What do you, you know how it is. And uh, so we got, we got talking and, and, uh, he started pressing me, friendly, in a friendly way, just pressing me about, do I really believe this stuff? And, you know. and, and I remember saying to him, Newtown, had, it had just happened. It had, you remember, it was just before Christmas, and this was just after Christmas that I was at this uh, conference. And, and uh, I remember saying to him, when you look at Newtown, Connecticut, don't you scream? Doesn't your heart scream evil? Well, of course it does, right? Of course, I mean, the guy's a non-believer, but he looks, at, he looks at Newtown, Connecticut, and everything in him is going, that's evil, you know. But I told him, but you have no reason to think it. Like, I have a reason to think it. Because I told him, because he, I, I mean, we're literally, the bus is pulling in right to White Plains, and he pops the question, and he says to me, have you ever had doubts about your belief? And I said, well, I've had questions, 
don't know if I say I have doubts of whether it's true, but I said, when I look at Newtown, Connecticut, and everything in me screams that's evil, I realize that if what I believe is not true about God, I have no basis by which I can say that that's evil. And just to even say those words is like nails on a chalkboard to say that there's any way you could call Newtown not evil. But if you don't believe in God, I don't know. What's the difference? If, if I take a piece of chalk up here and I snap it in half, you don't, you don't go, Whoa, oh my gosh, oh no, that's horrible, right? I snap a piece. If I broke my glasses right now, you'd be like, he's crazy. But you'd be like, you know, who cares? But when a guy goes in and, and shoots 21 first graders, you're, you're horrified. Why? If we're just molecules, if we're just cells, if that's all there is, what's the difference between a piece of chalk and a first grader? I, that sounds horrible to say, and, I, and I, don't, I don't want to say it crassly. I just want to say it starkly so that a person goes, yeah, what is the difference? Don't tell me over and over and over and over again that we're just a, a cosmic, chaotic collection of atoms and then tell me I should care when first graders get shot. Don't do that. But I do care because I believe that those kids are created in the image of God. I believe that there's a God who made them and said they're valuable. And the only reason those first graders are valuable is because God has said they're valuable. And I trust God. And so even the non-believer, when he looks at that, when he looks at Newtown, we all get horrified. There's no honest non-believer out there who goes, no, whatever. It's like chalk. No one does that. That's because it's bubbly. And now they have to press that down, right? This is the problem that non-believers have ultimately with general revelation. The only image I can kind of compare it to is like when you get a beach ball and you're trying to hold it down in the pool, you know? And so you get that, you know what I'm doing. And so you get that beach ball and you're like, you're trying to push it under the water and you get it under there and all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's just, it just, you know, and so you, you know, you just go, whoop, you know, and, it's, it's constant. and that's, and that's what general revelation is like. It's like just popping up over here and then they have to go, then they press it down. They go, oh no, there's no God. Then Newtown happens and they go, oh, that's evil. That's because the ball, boom, it's popping up. And then it doesn't take long. Boom, they got to push it back down but it comes up from within them. That's conscience. We all have it. It convicts us. Now, now Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He draws on this uh, aspect of general revelation. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, so he's talking about people, they didn't have the Ten Commandments, a lot of these nations. He says, when they don't have the law, but by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. So it's not only eternity that's been put in our hearts, the law has been put in our hearts. Sure, it's not listed out on tablets of stone, but we all have a sense you shouldn't kill your neighbor. We all get it that that's wrong. Now, I know there's some people who go do it, but even take ISIS. Right, these guys, you said, well, they don't believe it. Well, they do believe it. They just think, like all of us, right, they've just drawn the line somewhere else. But they don't think you could just go around killing anybody. Now, there are some nuts who so just sear their conscience that they would, right, or people who are sick or so forth. But, but again, even ISIS just draws the line at a different place. They just don't consider what they're doing murder. They consider it war, right? We all, we all grant that if I go to war and kill somebody, I mean, there are pacifists, but you understand, if I go kill somebody at war, it's war. It's not murder. They're just drawing the line over here. I think they're wrong, of course. I'm not justifying ISIS in here. <laughs> we don't go away with that thought. Yeah, Bill, Bill thinks ISIS is fine. <laughs> no, I'm not doing, I'm not doing that. I'm not, they, they, we can, they just, but they're doing, they ha, even they, even they have a standard. So 
So it's not only that that's been written in our hearts, but the law. So who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Right. So their, their thoughts are constantly doing that as the law. OK, so again, it's general, but it's clear. It's clear, even though they try to sear it. All right. Then finally, uh, using uh, uh, Dr. Tipton's things. So nature, conscience and then history. And by history, I'm going to I'm going to use it to refer to God's providential care. Now, for this, uh, another passage of scripture, Acts chapter 14, uh, Paul is in the city of Iconium. And he uh, says this is Acts 14 uh, verses 14 through 17. They've just healed a guy, and now they're being worshipped as gods, Zeus and Hermes. And they're saying, what are you nuts? Don't, don't worship us. Don't worship us. We're men like you. And then he says this. This is Acts 14, 14 through 17. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We, are also, uh, we also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all the, all the things that are in them. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness. Now, we just heard Paul use that language for the conscience, that it bears witness to us. Now, here is Paul speaking in Iconium and saying that God has left even those pagans out there in all these ages with a witness. He did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So for Paul, it's not just that the heavens are declaring, though they are, but God's providential care, right? The fact that the rain falls and crops grow, the fact that you put seed in the ground and do not, you put it there and then something happens and all of a sudden food just comes up out of the ground. That's an amazing thing. And rain comes and waters it and so forth. Paul says, God has left you a witness. He's cared for you. So many things that your life depends on are completely out of your control, and they're just gifted to you. And so I also chose to think about this Matthew 6 because Jesus draws on this too when he points his listeners to the lilies of the field. He goes, didn't you hear that sermon? He said, what sermon? The sermon the lilies were preaching to you. Right? Don't you see the way they're robed and clothed? Why do you think you won't be taken care of? Didn't you hear that sermon of the swallows or the sparrows? Didn't you see how they eat? Look at them. They don't toil and labor. And the Lord provides for them. And in that was a testimony. See, every, there's no neutral molecule. Everything's preaching to you. You have to have ears to hear it. You know, you have to have ears to hear it. And by God's grace, we do. But, of course, as we say, uh, many do not. Now, um, from that, I just want to uh, jump and do a little thought here on the theistic proofs, the proofs for God's existence, because... The things we just talked about from nature, from conscience, and from history provide the content that a lot of our arguments for God's existence come from, right? I guess I just want to encourage you how to think about these. Uh, uh, I don't like calling them proofs because they're not proofs in that, in that abstract logical sense. But what they are, I like how Tim Keller calls them, actually. He calls them clues, and I think that's helpful, right? They're clues. They point to the reality of God. And if we use them that way, then I think we're using them, we're using them well. But we just have to be, the danger in using the proofs for God's existence, and I think this, uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, puts it this way. He says, 
belief in God is not the last stage of a rational argument. Like we reason from nothingness to God and God is the conclusion that we reason our way to. He says, we, we, you want to be careful of that, right? God is the necessary assumption that makes all reasoning even possible, right? It's the only reason we can even begin to reason is because of the reality of God. God is not just the conclusion. God is actually the assumed presupposition to even begin the talk, right? If a person wants to have a rational argument, we might ask them why they think there's any rationality to begin with. Why does anything make sense in a chaotic, accidental universe? We're already assuming the reality of God as we begin the very talk itself. Uh, anyway, you were, you were bringing up uh, Cornelius Van Til last week, and this is Van Til's baby, right? This is what he has really brought. He's kind of refreshed this within the Reformed uh, faith. I like Again, while you brought up C.S. Lewis, uh, and I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He puts it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. Right? I believe in God like I believe the sun has come up, not just because I look and I see it, but because I see everything else because of it. Right? It's because of God that I'm able to have this. It's because of God that we have a sense of right and wrong. It's because of God that there's rationality. So I, we just want it. So the theistic, the theistic clues or proofs for God draw on all those things we just talked about. But we want to make sure we use them properly. They're helpful. They're helpful, but ultimately we want, we want to do more like what I what what I tried to do. I, I, I Neil Perlman, Neil Perlman. I'll pray for Neil tonight. His name stuck with me. It's been a few years now. Neil Perlman is that guy on the bus with me, and uh, so pray for Neil Perlman tonight. But um, but to pull that right to say to say you you are thinking like a Christian but denying the truth of Christianity. You want to say there's no God, but your other thoughts demand that there be a God in order to hold them, right? You want to say there's no God, but then you're calling that evil. I just like to know why. Those, those arguments, I think, are a little more helpful. They, they pull the rug out, right? Because they force somebody to reckon with the inconsistencies in their own worldview. You know, what is the difference between a first grader and a piece of chalk in my worldview? Now, at first, they throw you off. They're like, that's ridiculous. That's where you push. But why? In my worldview, it makes complete sense. But within your worldview, there's no basis for it. So because what we've done there is saying, don't you see how God is undergirds that? Unless you have God, you can't even begin to look at the first grader differently than you do the piece of chalk. So I want to start with the belief in God. It's, he's the source of the rationality. He's the source of the sense of justice and these things. So again, rather than, rather than making God the concluding statement, he's actually the beginning. Okay, um, number three, quickly, the audience. Now, we've already talked about this, so in some, we'll, we'll kind of plow through. But... What do we know about the audience of general revelation? Well, we've already said it, it's universal. There's no tribe. There's no place. The line has gone out across the globe. There is no one who has not received this. Everyone has received it because it's external and internal. Right? It's, it's, it's bubbling up within them. Right? So it's already there. So everyone has it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and there's nowhere they haven't seen it. All have understood, Paul says in Romans 1. They all have the revelation. They all perceive it, Paul says, internally or externally. So it's universal. But then B, 
the audience is a bunch of suppressors. We, we are by nature truth suppressors, right? So we're by nature pushing the truth down. This is important now. Now we're doing systematic theology. We're, I'm saying this about man, but because the work has been done in many, many texts and we could go look at them to say, what does the Bible tell us about the unconverted man or woman? And the Bible is pretty strong about it, right? So Ephesians 2 says that man is dead in his sins and tresses, by nature a child of wrath. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this age has blinded them. Speaking of Satan there, right? Blinded them. Romans chapter 8, Paul says the natural mind is hostile toward God. We are at enmity with God. In Romans 6, he says we are slaves to sin. I mean, in Romans chapter 3, in Romans 3, right, he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Then, and we go, okay, we get that. But then he goes on. There is none who seeks God. There is none who understands, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. I mean, again, you've got to let the Bible shape your understanding of the audience of general revelation, right? There, the Bible really piles it on pretty strongly about how bent Sin has made man and woman against God. So we are not neutral, just observing and trying to come to some conclusion. And when you do evangelism or when you do apologetics, you're dealing with somebody who's bent the other way, right? They're bent toward this. And, that, and you can't unbend them. That's the work of the Spirit. And, and, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you declare it, but only God can, only God can do the bending. So again, in Romans 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and then, and then thirdly, see their idolaters. And here, and here's what is so important to understand. And this is, gets back to the fact that there's no atheists. There may be somebody who says, "I don't believe in a personal god," but everybody worships something. We are by nature worshippers. It's what makes us different than again all the other of, in the animal kingdom. We were made to worship and it's instinctive to us to do it and we will do it. None of us will have a vacuum in our soul. We will worship something. I had, we have a bunch of Chinese students over at Chapel Field and, I had, and most of them are not believers and they come in, they go to church with the host families and all these kinds of things. And um, some of them you, you end up having great discussions with. We've had some that have given their lives to the Lord. It's been, it's been great. I had this one kid last year, his name was Chung and, uh, and he would say to me, he, he, he was in my apologetics class of all things, and he only stayed for half the year. But we had a good time. He would just wear me out after class. We'd stay, and I'd be talking to Chung for half an hour, 40 minutes. And what would drive him crazy is I would say, Chung, you worship. And that would make him crazy. I do not worship. I don't have a God. But getting him to realize, yes, you do. We all do. Whatever is that thing that you are living for, right? Whatever you say, if I don't have this, it's not worth living. Whatever the thing you're striving after, that is your God. It's what you worship. It's what you devote yourself to. Worship is just worship, right? It's ascribing worth. So whatever's on the top of your worth list, and we all have one, that's God. That's your God. And we may have many of them, but that thing at the top is what you're worshiping. And I, oh, it drove him crazy. But this is the reality. We all worship. And what Paul says is not, oh, they suppress the truth and then just become atheists. No, look at what he says. This is um, down in verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him. Right? 
Paul taps into something. There's an intentionality here. They refused to glorify God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And by the way, this gets to what you were talking about. I forget who you were talking about. Is this the, the computer, the software developer? Or computer? Was that a cousin? Cousin, yeah. See, their foolish hearts are darkened, right? Professing to be wise, they become fools, right? G.K. Chesterton said, if you don't worship the one true God, it's not that you will not worship anything, it's that you'll worship everything. And listen to the Discovery Channel when they talk about the amazing wonders of creation and, they, and it's like they're worshiping the thing itself, the animal itself or the cell or the mutation. It's like all these things, mother nature, nature itself is like, it's almost like praise language they're giving to it instead of directing it to God. If you won't worship the one true God, you'll worship everything. And professing to be wise, they become fools. And verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, or they changed it in the, in the King James. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So what does man do by nature? They suppress the truth and then they exchange it for a lie. That's right. I'd never want to put it in terms of need, however we are called, right. right? And that he has included us in his work of saving people. Yeah, he doesn't, he, he can do what he did with Paul, you know, but, but that's not generally how he does it. Right. The way he generally does it is by saying, go, mm -hmm. you, you go tell them. And what, what I really believe is it's a tremendous privilege that he offers to us. He, he, I mean, to play a role in bringing people to the kingdom is a tremendous gift and he lets us share in it. And yes, he is sovereign. So at the end of the day, if, if you're like me, you've given really bad gospel presentations. You know, I've shared the gospel and walked away going, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, wow, I blew that, you know? And uh, I think of my uncle, my dad's cousin actually, so he's my cousin, but I think of him as an uncle. And and um, I, he, he, was like a, he was like a father to me when I was in seminary for those three years. Took care of me like a son every Sunday while he was home. He traveled a lot. But when he was home, took me and my roommate and then me and my wife for dinner every Sunday night. And didn't care anything about, cared nothing about the faith. Nothing. And uh, knew I was in seminary and thought it was cute. But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't care anything about it. And he was kind of, the Spaniards can be tough. He was tough. And, uh, but he was, I loved him. I loved my Uncle Mick. He's still alive. And he's 93, I think. And uh, so but I'm leaving for, to go home. I'm leaving like that week. And I'm thinking, man, I've had dinner with him forever. You know, and I've tried to share the gospel, but, you know, done such poor job. I said, I have to do this before I leave. I cannot leave and know that I have not had one sit down, look him in the eye, tell him the gospel, you know. And so I called him up and I said, Mick. And he said, yeah, what's going on? I said, I, I need to talk to you. They said, all right, come over. And I'm like, I'm shaking the whole way. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm just, I, I get over there. I'm a seminary student. See, this, there's no difference between us. And um, I get over there and I sit and I like pour my heart out to him, you know. Mick, you just need to hear this. I need you just to listen to me and I just need to tell you this. Because I could never bear him saying to me one day after death, you know, Bill, all three years you had with me, you couldn't tell me. So I told him, the guy, you know, and I tripped over myself and bumbled and stumbled because I knew what he was thinking the whole time. And, and when, I was, when I was done, he said to me, he said, Bill, I, I, know, I know you love me, and I love that, and I'm thankful for that. He says, but I don't, I don't care two bits about any of this, you know. And my heart was broken, and, 
I went home feeling like a complete loser. <laughs> and uh, then my brother Dan went down, and then my brother Steve. We all went to seminary there, and Mick treated us all the same way. And one day I get a call from my brother Steve. He says, Bill, Mickey's going to church, and he wants to get baptized. And I, I'm like, you know, pass out. I said, what? You know, and, uh, and I just, and I, I think to myself, I say, Lord, I thank you that, that people's salvation does not depend on our presentations. And, and, you know, his word is powerful and he's the one that saves and he can take a stumbling, bumbling presentation like I gave and I'm sure my brothers gave and use it to bring salvation. And he can take the most winsome presentation of the faith and it fall dead on a person's heart. And so you trust him for these things. So, all right, well, I'm sorry I, I held you over and, and, uh, We'll see you next week. Don't forget, next week is at the old, the historic building. Let me close in uh, prayer as we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed that people's salvation does not depend on us. And yet, at the same time, we thank you that you give us the privilege to participate in the proclamation of the gospel. And Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a witness. And yet, Father, we know that that witness condemns us because our hearts are naturally bent against you. We thank you that you have pulled scales from our eyes and scales from our hearts, that we can see you. And we thank you that we have the joy of knowing that, how we pray for our friends and neighbors, co-workers, family members who do not know you, who still have scales over their hearts, hard hearts of stone. We pray that you would re- deliver them from that, that they too might know the joy of having sins forgiven, of being reconciled to the one true God, that they too can walk out and see the starry night and the beautiful sunrise, Father, and give you praise and honor and glory. So, Father, we thank you for the work you've done in our hearts. Let us meditate on these things as we go home and throughout this week, Father, until we meet again next week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.